Hi, everybody. This is Science Modeling Talks, the podcast that features top modeling instructors and thought leaders sharing ideas. I'm your host, Mark Royce. Remember to visit sciencemodelingtalks.com to access extra content related to our interviews and to learn more about our guests. While you're there, share your thoughts and comments by clicking the link that says, tell us what you think. We really want to hear from you. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. My guest for this episode is Scott Milam, who currently teaches chemistry at Plymouth High School in Michigan. Scott holds a master's degree of science in chemistry. He completed his initial training in modeling instruction pedagogy in 2015, and he's led modeling workshops since 2018. Scott was the 2017 Michigan Science Teacher of the Year and was a finalist for the Presidential Award for Excellence in Mathematics and Science Teaching, the PAEMST, in 2019, 2021, and in 2023. Also in 2023, Scott is the recipient of the AMTA's Malcolm Wells Leadership Award and is the president of the Southeastern Michigan Chemistry Teachers Organization. Along with several chemistry journal contributions and over 500 YouTube videos, he's published two books, The No Teacher Left Behind Club in 2019 and Teaching Introductory Chemistry in 2022. Here's my conversation with Scott. Hey, Scott, how are you doing? I'm good, Mark. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad you're here. It's, uh, I, I've been looking forward to talking with you. You have quite a lot to share with our listeners, I think, and uh, we're going to dig in right now. And I just want to ask you to begin with, uh, I saw that you've spent quite a bit of time looking at the historical progression of chemistry as it has unfolded over the years. And uh, I, I just wanted to ask you what you've learned from that area of study, insights that you could share with us a little bit. Yeah, I I started reading about chemical history just a little bit informally, and then when I wrote my book, I I put a little bit of effort going into really trying to get a sense of what happened, and I was surprised at how that impacted my teaching. It hmm. there's things in the modeling chemistry resources and curriculum that that you don't really get until you've seen kind of what that looked like in the 1800s, and what I found is that the 1800s of chemistry was kind of a mess. And so it's really hard to go back into it because there's different language used and how they describe chemicals. And there's, there's a lot of uh, models that they're using that we don't, we don't really use anymore. And so I, I found it really fascinating to go through and kind of the more I read, the more I kind of felt like I would want to really go through and see what I could pull into the classroom and, and see what I could use. Um, there's there's two main books. There's a J.R. Partington wrote the a brief history of chemistry, and then Aaron Ide uh, from University of Wisconsin later wrote. And so I've read both of theirs, and it's been it's been kind of fun because all the little fun books that you like, you know, like uh, Disappearing Spoon or Caesar's Last Breath or uh, some of the books by Deborah Blum. All of those stories are in these kind of tales. And Partington was a student of of Nernst. And then Ide was just a student at the University of Wisconsin who wanted to study chemical history. Um, but 
I, I find that me being able to add stories of the smartest people in the world at this time, having these thoughts that were incorrect into my instruction is really powerful for students in that it shows them, you know, like it's okay to not be at perfection. That as long as you're progressing and, and moving up, that you're doing something useful and productive. Right. And so it kind of aligns nicely with that growth mindset kind of a objective that I want. Okay. Now, you were studying this historical development of chemistry over the years before you were introduced to modeling or after you were introduced to modeling methods? I would say after. So I, I started, I took my first modeling workshop in 2015 uh, under Gary Abu. Mm-hmm. And I would say that I probably started to read nonfiction, chemical history stuff pretty, pretty intensely in 2018, 2019, 2020. Um, so that hmm. was, that was something that kind of just by chance kind of gradually got into it. And then the more I read, the more I read. So that's interesting. So what, how do you see how the, uh, historical development of chemistry interacts with, with the modeling approach? Are modelers kind of keeping that, is that involved in the modeling approach? I mean, the, the view to the historical development of chemistry? That's a great question that I would love to ask at some point to the to whoever made the resources. <laughs> what I find is that it aligns really nicely. For instance, there's a new Lego activity that we started doing about five years ago in the chemical re- in the uh, materials. And hmm. if you go back to Liebig, who was an organic chemist in the 1820s through the 1850s, 1860s. Uh, and, and, and Kekulé, August Kekulé, that they used similar structures to what we do in that Lego activity. So there's an idea of valence, hmm. not valence electrons, but just carbon connects to about four things usually, and oxygen connects to about two things. And we represent that with Lego bricks. Hmm. Well, if you look at the chemists at that time who don't really work in any kind of bonding model, they use that as their particulate representation. And there's a, there's a professor in Ohio, Alan Rock, I believe is his name. And he talks about how the ability to imagine particles opened up the door for chemists to really be able to explore new ideas. So since most of what we're doing is abstract and cognitive in nature, having an image is really is really a big deal. There's actually a, a chemist, I, I can't remember the name, I want to say cop, but I might be wrong, who complained about it as like in the kids these days with their fancy pictures in their heads of of, of going through the different chemicals. And if they really just stuck to the quantitative proportional reasoning, like, like the experts did, they would really grow up and be able to do the harsh chemistry, which is always mildly amusing to see that back 150 years ago. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, another, another one that I really like is there's a, there's a book by Jane Marset. And this is from the late 1700s and it's conversations on chemistry. And, and what she did was she did a thing where she was instructing two female students, which one is very rare at the time, right? So her husband was a chemist and they were both well off. And so that afforded her some things that weren't available to most people. So she writes this book and I believe initially she put it under a different name, but later put her own name on it. And that book was revolutionary because it's kind of, it's kind of like modeling if you read it through and you can kind of dissect some of the ways that they describe chemicals in it. But she has the students asking questions like, why, when I observe this, does this happen? And so you can see the students kind of saying, here's the limitation of what, what I'm seeing when I do this. 
And then she goes through and, and offers some feedback on that. And that book was actually the inspiration for Michael Faraday to go into science. He read that book and was just absolutely blown away by, yeah, what's this thing that I can't see and what, what could be happening and how can I develop ideas and, and models of, of how that works so that I can kind of understand and be able to predict and do all the things that we want our students to do. So you uh, have already mentioned a few books as in the short time we've been talking here, and I know you're an avid reader. So, well, I think I saw that you have a Twitter feed that talks about your book uh, reading and, and you review books and that kind of thing. My question is, what are, would be like the top couple of books that you would recommend that modeling instructors read? Is there, are there a couple that pop out and, you know, hey, modelers really should read this one? I, I could probably name 30. Um, oh my! I'm gonna put I'm gonna put a couple <laughs> different spins on there. I'm gonna put some rare ones that aren't normally talked about. So one is there's a there's a book by Edward Franklin. I'm not sure the exact name on it, but it's something to the effect of how to teach chemistry or lessons in chemistry or something like that. And this would have been mid 1800s, and it's it's him going through and saying basically. When you learn chemistry, you, you waste so much time copying down notes and writing what the instructor says that you're not listening and thinking. So this book is an attempt to be able to share with you what, what you should be pulling out of these things. And for the instructor, how do you show students things? And what's really interesting about it that I think is one component we take out of a modeling workshop for chemistry is that everything he's doing is trying to convince the student that this is real. So he's going through and saying – Here's a lesson on how to show that the composition of nitric oxide contains nitrogen. And you want to take these chemicals and, and show the student this. And, and when you see this, that's your evidence that, that they can kind of connect that there's this thing. And what he does is he kind of presents this. I'm going to assume the student won't believe what you have to say unless you can really convince them by showing them. Right. And, and it's so different from where we've kind of ended up in education. Like when I was in high school and then at the tail end of the 90s, uh, going into the 2000s, it was so dictated by an authority of the teacher saying, this is what this is. Let me show you this. Huh. And, and it was evidence-based. And I remember the first time I took the workshop, that was one of my big takeaways was everything I'm doing in chemistry, I should be able to show or provide some type of phenomena or evidence that this is this is why we believe this particular thing and obviously sometimes that's harder than others but in this text you kind of see an insight into what that looks like uh, i also really like jane marset's book i thought it was really interesting it is hard to read some of the older ones because they will use different nomenclature right so the current nomenclature right. we use came in the 1930s by iupac but now you're going back to lavoisier's uh nomenclature and so they'll call carbonic acid as co2 right and, and some of them will use different things. Some of them will use water's formula as HO instead of H2O. So you have to kind of be able to root through some of those. But otherwise, it's, it's pretty good. It's, pretty, it's, it's something you would, you would find value in as a teacher, I think. Um, you said that you like to tie quantum chemistry into real-world situations or scenarios in your classroom. Can you talk to me a little bit of what that means? like an example of, of how you would do that in your classroom? The first thing that comes to mind when you bring that up is that I know teachers struggle with what to do with electron configurations. Hmm. It's a common question I see, you know, should we be teaching this? 
And I think teachers are stuck on, you know, what exactly is an orbital and what am I telling a student in orbital is that has very limited understanding. And maybe even, you know, what am I telling myself that an orbital is, which is a tricky idea. And I think one of the things that I would want to try and push to teachers is when you're teaching electron configurations, it's not about the mechanics of writing out the 1s2, 2s2. But you're really trying to communicate one of the biggest ideas in chemistry that we've ever discovered is that electrons behave differently than, than what all of the objects that we experience work like in terms of kinematics and, and motion. And so you're trying to develop that there's this completely other world that these electrons exist in that explain a, a substantial amount of chemistry. And so the idea of quantum to me is trying to build a little bit of, of spark and curiosity. And, and, and one of the ways I describe it to my students is that there is no way to understand it. There is no analogy for this because you don't have any experience like this. It's not like a ladder. People want to say it's like this where you can jump from this thing to this thing. But, but it's not. It, we can't see it. And we don't know exactly what it is. We can only kind of construct these analogies that, that partially describe it. Um, hmm. But I, I think that's a really fascinating topic. So I like to really get into that with the students. And I've kind of developed, uh, for Unit 10 for chemistry, I kind of developed a, let's start with the emission spectra and, and get into some questions of why is there no orange light? Why is there no green light, yellow light coming off of hydrogen spectra? Hmm. And why am I seeing this red and this teal and these two purple lines? And what, what exactly is going on with the chemical itself when I see light either emitted or absorbed or interacting with these chemicals? Uh, and then from there, I then like to eventually tie it into real-world stuff. So we look at UV light and fluorescence, which is a little more complex. We're no longer talking about single atoms now. We're talking about molecules. But, but similar ideas that we have some kind of incident light coming in. There's some very unusual interaction with the electron that changes how it moves. And then we get some different kind of light back. And I think that that's a really important idea for students to be able to have good understanding of, because if you talk about, for instance, you know, climate change, the, the entire premise is that we have this visible light coming through the atmosphere, hitting something, and then changing into these lower energy types of light where we have infrared and other things that aren't going to escape back out. So this greenhouse effect is, is a very critical piece to kind of being able to understand why is the CO2 levels rise, why this temperature range is going to go up, and that we've experienced that. When we go into a car on a sunny day, that the inside of our car is quite warm as we have energy and light moving into the car but not coming back out at the same rate. Yeah. I, I find that there's a lot of really cool things you can do with that fluorescence piece. You can look at a little bit of photoelectric effect, but you can also look at like like your driver's license has encoded encryption stuff on it that only show up when they fluoresce under the UV light. And you might see that in an airport when you check in for your flight. Mm -hmm. Or that if you look at f currency from different countries, you know, and, and you can look at uh, scorpions and banana spots and all kinds of other things. But I like to showcase a little bit of what's going on with light with the students. And when is that dangerous is the question that they want to know. Because they see a lot of stuff on, are cell phones bad, dangerous for me? And no, because it's a radio wave, you know, like there's no mechanism for that to cause you harm. It's like, it's like, you know, the people in the generation above me were scared of microwaves because they were new, but, but there's not really any sense of ability for that to do anything harmful. And you can kind of show the kids, well, it's like being scared of a light bulb, you know, like 
is it going to harm you? No, because the light is not doing anything that can damage DNA, barring some very unusual application of that light bulb. So, Yeah, that's great. Share a little bit more about your approach in the classroom as a teacher. What are some things that you've discovered that would be helpful, especially to newer modelers, like uh, maybe your top tips, you know, for people who are just getting into modeling and what you've learned in the classroom. One thing that I'm working on lately that I've really taken to is I'm trying to look at what happens in the minds of my top students. So my students that just seem to understand things. Most people uh, ignore them to a degree. They, they kind of go, this student's good. I'm going to worry about these others. And I try and look and go, how does this make sense to them? Like, for example, one of the things that I've loved the last two years is the new quantitative reasoning approach that, that Brenda mm-hmm. and Ariel have kind of put out there. Mm-hmm. Because to me, that's something that my top students, even if I were to show them dimensional analysis or, or show them some kind of algorithm, that's what they're doing that makes them successful in applying that algorithm. So what I want to do is then go, okay, what are, the, what are the verbal understandings and what are the components of that? And then how can I get my mid-level and, and bottom-tier students to be doing that level of thinking? I don't just want to give them more practice where they're kind of doing these things that aren't helping them. I want them to think like those other students are because, to me, that's how they're going to get to the level of success that I want for them. And so mm-hmm. – what I try and do is listen very carefully to what my top students are doing that's, that's getting them to make sense of these different things, share that with, with all of the students. Um, and so, so not really kind of looking at, at how I make sense of it, but how does a new student who's having success think this through? Um, and one of the ways I do that is I'll do – I'll have the students write. I'll do written reflections on some of the more complicated topics like a quantum chemistry – or like specific heat capacity. And as they do that, I'll take little snippets of those and share them with the group and say, I want you to look at how this student addresses this idea. Or here's an example of a student who doesn't think they understand multi-step calculations with specific heat capacity constants. Here's a student who does. What are the differences you notice between them? What's going on metacognitively? And what's going on in terms of the actual chemistry itself? How are they approaching this? So I, I kind of want to reveal that curtain for them and, and show the students, like, you can do this. You can do this really, really well, but you have to change how you approach it. And so I, I have found that that in particular has been a really big boost for me um, to get students to move up in a way that I, I normally hadn't seen them do. Mm-hmm. That's great. The other piece that I would say that I've been working hard on is, is how is my assessment? Um, some of the some of the modeling instruction stuff you said new teachers it's hard it's hard to teach unit 4 in chemistry it's it's kind of like when you get started i remember the first time i went i was like what did i even do in the workshop and i'm going through the worksheets but i'm not really clear on what my theme is or what what i'm trying to get the students to do and and one of the things that's helpful is having an assessment that takes you in the right spot for example in unit 4 when i first did it i'm working on that on that picture of just I've got these different particles, and they're a compound when I have two different elements stuck together. And so I have this picture of what that looks like. And that's what students go to right away because they've seen those pictures in middle school or in a textbook somewhere. 
And I find that unit four works best when you're looking at it from a perspective of what's the difference between a compound and a mixture in terms of composition, not bonding where the particles are stuck, but rather if it's a compound, it's always the same stuff in the exact same proportions. So I want to look at a proportion perspective and a, and a mass ratio. So, so students understand H2O is water. Great. But do they understand that eight grams of oxygen for every one gram of hydrogen is that proportion? And that's different. And, and I want to push them into that realm first, get them to think like that, and then go to the H2O to, to kind of connect that back to their prior knowledge. And so when I set up my assessment, I need to set that up so that I get that value across. So I want to write questions that then look at compositional data and have students doing that analysis even if it might not be that challenging, I want them to see that that's what I want them to value and that's what I value. So I kind of have been working hard at going, how do I assess whether a student really understands this idea? What are the ideas that I want them to understand and to cycle through that? Uh, I happen to have another brilliant teacher next to me and she and I have been working really hard on rewriting all of our assessments this year and adding some of those structures and thought into the modeling process. We sat down at the start of the year and kind of said, we're really good at getting kids to think hard in a discussion, but then they lose it. Hmm. You know, the next day, some of them are drifting off and by two weeks, they're not remembering the stuff from that discussion. So we've been working hard at trying to make our assessments align back to our discussions and then providing students with structures for notes during the discussion and structures for tying in the worksheets to those and, and having a set of standards that, that kind of give coherency and structure to that so that the student is continually thinking about that stuff we did in the initial data collection and phenomena and then also in our discussion and whiteboarding process. You've kind of touched on this as you've been talking here. Um, the classroom today is very diverse. There are students that have a stronger background and have had stronger opportunities uh, coming into the science world, into the into the chemistry classroom. And so talk a little bit more about how you deal with such a diverse set of students in your classroom. What are some of the tips that, and uh, lessons that you've learned about dealing with the differences in your, in your students? I think that's a huge challenge. I think that most things in education, often when we reduce research down into this is what works, we have to almost ignore the fact that we're starting with this distribution of students. And that's a really big thing. For me, I found the most effective thing for dealing with diversity and student thought and where they're starting is to have reassessments on their, on their assessment. So when, in 2015, when I did my modeling training under Gary Abood, um, I had switched to standards-based grading, but it wasn't until 2018, I believe, that I added in the reassessment component. And what that does is, is some big things. One, it, it changes the messaging to the students on your assessment from, from punitive to feedback, Right. And I, I know that many teachers are like me and that you have highly stressed out students where it seems like every point they lose is going to cost them a university admission somewhere. Hmm. And I know I carried a lot of that stress with me when I would grade. And, and when I went to reassessments, that opened up a lot, of, a lot of health for me to kind of feel comfortable giving honest, critical feedback and knowing that it would be OK, that it wasn't ruining their life. And taking them from, you know, this place to this place, but rather me saying, this isn't there yet. 
and you need to think about this differently. And so I, I think that that also then sets up the student that they're not taking a bad score at the beginning first unit or two and then being on a track where there's not really any positive way for them to grow forward. They're just going to work hard and continue to struggle. It instead says, look, I, I, I'm teaching you these things because they're important and we're going to use them and I need you to learn them. And so if you can reassess and go through and do it again, you can get that learning. I teach you naming because I need you to name chemicals for when we do reactions. So if you didn't learn it, the, the response to that should be you go through and learn it. That's the consequence of that. Whereas what, prior to that, it really was just kind of a mess. No matter what I did, we're always dealing with that distribution. It's not until I give them multiple opportunities that all of a sudden I see more and more students able to shift upward, if that makes sense. But I think also that's a beauty of teaching. It's super difficult. Even I have a, I have a pretty good situation going on in terms of I have wonderful students and we all do, but, but you know, I, I, I do appreciate them quite a bit. And, and I get to teach some really fun stuff that we all love. And yet, it is very difficult. No matter what I do, there's always things that could go better. There's always students who struggle. And I'm always trying to figure that out. And I think that that's one of the beautiful things about teaching is that it is, I think, the best field to be in right now. When we look at medicine and law and, and legal professions, We've already figured that out. We know how to do engineering nearly perfectly. We're at the sixth decimal place, to go back to whoever said that. <laughs> but in teaching, we're all over the place. There are ideas out there that are abjectly terrible and are being propagated. And I think one of the beautiful things in the modeling community is that we feel like we've had these struggles with teaching. And then we found this kind of cornerstone piece of like, hey, we can solve a lot of these problems here by taking these different approaches. And so I, I love that about that. I like that it's difficult and I like being in a situation where I feel like I can match that challenge of, of being able to maybe not solve the problem, but make a good amount of progress toward how do you do teaching really, really well and how do you get students to learn? And so to me, I think that's fantastic. I, I think that teachers who kind of get into that point where they've had the support and they've had the connections and mentors and they're, they're in a school environment that they can do it and have that autonomy, that it's a beautiful job to be able to teach chemistry. I have fun every day. I'm so excited to go into work. That's awesome. That's really great, Scott. I read that you have, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's you've got over 500 videos posted on YouTube related to chemistry. I, I started doing YouTube, I think, before it was cool. And so they're they're not always the highest level, but that was a that was a trip to get involved in that when I did. And then I, I think for a while there I tried to increase my quality and now I'm just being outclassed by people who are who are better at that than me. But I actually found that to be a great preparation to kind of sit there and go, All right, if I'm gonna talk about acid bases, you know, like what what do I wanna to communicate to students and teachers in ten minutes and to really truncate, you know, what are the key features and how do I show that? What examples do I pick? Yeah. It was, it was a really big thing because one of the pieces that's important to teaching is being able to do reflection, right? What am I doing and why? Is it working and why or why not? And what should I change? And in the YouTube setting, because you're putting that out there for everyone, there's a little bit more pressure to really reflect on what exactly am I doing when I do this? And I think that's something that's hard for a lot of people to 
come to grips with is that the content piece of it is really critical. Yeah. When we look at chemistry content, you can approach the same topic in a lot of different ways, and some of them aren't really that good. The ones that in particular I think that we're off, off the mark on are that we sometimes develop these abstract things that, that don't really connect back to anything real. Hmm. So, so when we talk about abstraction, there's a, there's a group called the learning scientists who produce great cognitive science stuff. And they, they kind of explain abstraction as saying, I'm going to give you two concrete examples. So they use the example of scarcity. You could have a water scarcity and a drought. And you could have a ticket scarcity for a big sporting event. And so the cost of the tickets goes up and the cost of the water goes up and all these consequences. And so the student can then take these two different scenarios and abstract the idea that's common to both, right? What's happened instead in a lot of chemical education is because it's so hard to teach chemistry that they're, they're, they're giving you abstract algorithms and asking you to abstract from abstractions. So they're saying, here's how I process this thing. Now you take the idea out of it. And what we want to do in modeling instead is say, no, we, we need to have some type of concrete experience and we want to showcase that to students and give them different representations of it so they can abstract the relationships that we see and describe from that, from that na- nature, right? So I'm going to show you mass volume data and we're going to graph it. We're going to look at a line of best fit. And we're going to draw a particle representation and then I'm going to extract, abstract this idea of, of a relationship between mass and volume. And at the end, we're going to throw a term on there to be able to retrieve all those ideas. We're going to call this density, right? And I think that that approach is really cool at being able to do that versus all right, I'm going to show you dimensional analysis and I'm going to show you how to get to a gram to gram connection. I could show the steps of that. But if I come back to an earlier point, what we're seeing is that the top students are doing some of those connections that the other students are just treating this like it's a numbers on a page. And they're trying to find some abstract pattern in those without really any deep understanding. Mm-hmm. There's a book, I think it's called How We Learn by Stanislaw Dehane, and they're doing a, a book talk on it right now uh, with AMTA. And his point is that human learning is better than AI, or at least for now, because humans develop these mental models. And one of the big pieces of that is being able to ignore the right piece of information. Hmm. And I think that some of the times in education, we look at training students as though they were computers. We're teaching them as though they were AI, and that's not the appropriate way to do it. You're, you're, you're missing this cornerstone of why humans learn better than anything else that's ever existed, potentially. And instead, you're trying to kind of take these other things. And I, I don't say that with judgment. It's hard to teach chemistry. Like, I've done those things, you know, but now I've found this new thing that I, I'm like, oh, now I see how I can do this even better yeah. than what I was doing before. Just to make a point for our listeners, um, after when we post this uh, episode, on our website, I'll also be including links to like your Twitter feed with your book reviews and your YouTube channel, you know, and all the different your website, the different things that uh, you have made available publicly. There will be links to all that at on our website at, under this episode. So people who are listening can go and find all that stuff uh, later after listening. There, there's a lot out there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I noticed that. <laughs> Life in the public eye. Yeah. So you wrote a book 
uh, a couple of them, but you wrote one more recently called Teaching Introductory Chemistry. And uh, do you want to give us a brief description of what that book is about so people can go out and try to find it? I would love to. There's a quote that I put somewhere in the book from Toni Morrison that says, if you want to read a book and it doesn't exist, you must write that book. Ah. <laughs> so when I, I used to teach physics way back in the day, back in 2010 through 2012, which is actually how I got into modeling. And I remember when I started teaching that I was, I was gifted this book called Teaching Introductory Physics by Arnold Ahrens. And it was, it was great. It's, it's a book that goes through and it would interview college physics students, college physics professors, maybe high school students occasionally. And it would ask them questions like, if a ball keeps rolling, what's going on? And the kids would say, inertia. And then the book would say, so what we did was we tried to figure out what do I need to do to actually figure out if they know what that means or if they just know to say the word inertia there. So it came up with what questions do you ask? What content, what twists and turns can you put in there to really get at does a student understand? Hmm. So I read that book and it was phenomenally helpful for teaching physics. I'm going to do a brief diversion here. So fun note for, for, for me is that there's another physics teacher at my school who was the first at our school to do modeling. And he, he came to me early in my, in my teaching there and said, hey, I really think you would, you would like this. I think you should try it. And, and back then, I was a little more arrogant, and I was like, oh, no, that's for, that's for teachers who need that stuff, you know, not me. I, I got this. I can explain it so well, but you, you should see me. It's, it's, it's crazy. I should have a YouTube channel. <laughs> and, and, and so he said, oh, great. We should take this pre-post-test pre thing, and you can look, and you can see how you do. And so I gave this concept inventory before and after, and I remember putting it in and kind of going, oh, they didn't really, they did a little better, but you know, some kids really didn't even get better at all. So I got my results and I went down to show him and, and he's like, oh yeah, those are really good for a traditional teacher. I think that's what I said. He, he didn't mean it with any toad either. And, uh, and so I look and I'm like, well, what did you get? And he's like, oh, here's my scores. We did the hate gain analysis. So, which is how many questions more that you could have gotten right per student. And I think I had a 0.28 so a 28% increase in correct answers of those available. And his average was like 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6. I was just like, what? How on earth did I lose that bad? Like I didn't, I, maybe I didn't teach perfectly, you know, but I was like, I feel like I did a decent job. So then I started to look, I was like, well, what are you doing? And I remember looking, this is Jim Gell who, who teaches at Plymouth High School with me. And I remember looking at his worksheets and just kind of thinking, I don't even know how I would instruct this. And I just became curious. And so a couple summers later, I finally did the workshop and kind of started things. So, so um, anyway, so I had read this book, Teaching Introductory Physics, and I really wanted to read Teaching Introductory Chemistry, and I waited for a while, and it was not out there. And there really wasn't a book like it. I mean, I guess there's the Edward Franklin 1860s version, but there really wasn't a book on how do you get whether or not a student understands chemistry. And so um, during COVID, I really disciplined and focused and wrote a lot and edited a lot. Um, and kind of everything that I knew about teaching that I had ever learned all went into that book. And I already have many things that I wish I had put in there. So, <laughs> um, but it, it was great to write. It, it was something where it was, it was very challenging and I constantly wanted help 
I remember just kind of reaching out to anyone, I was, my English teachers. I was going like, "Hey, how do I how do I write a book?" <laughs> you know, and they're like, "Well, you have to practice writing." And I'm like, "Okay, I'm going to practice writing." And so I do all these different things, and I tried to read a lot, to research, and it's just kind of to write and then think and then reflect and go back and go, "Okay, was I communicating what I was hoping to?" Uh, and so it's a book. It's intended to be written for teachers. It's intended to be written for new teachers as well as experienced teachers. It's got a mix of high level and basic stuff of, of how to do different things. It's got some focus on cognitive science and learning, how the brain works, how we can optimize that. But, but primarily it's intended to be a focus on how do you actually get across chemistry content? So for, for me, an example that comes to mind is reaction energy diagrams is something I remember my first couple of years just putting up there and kind of going, do you see how the bar ends up lower? So there's less energy at the end. That means energy must have left. That's an exothermic reaction. And I would take the students down this chain of phrases that they would be able to follow what I was saying and repeat it. And they would go, oh, yeah, if it exits, it's exothermic. You know, and they even had a little bit of, of that kind of connection linguistically. And then later, me going, they don't know anything. Like, I didn't teach them anything. I just kind of trained them to repeat this one sentence or, or to identify this one feature, but they don't know what the energy, they don't know whether it's chemical or, or some other type, you know, they don't really know what that means. Like if I were to say draw what that <laughs> means, you know, I could get a whole rate. So I started to really get down into like, okay, what, what should that look like? You know, and I found that in order for students to understand a chemical, a reaction energy diagram, they need to look at force, position, and motion, and they need to look a little bit at what's happening when, when bonds break. Now, chemistry teachers go nuts over bond breaking, and they blame everything on biology teachers, which is just completely unfair. It's not biology teachers' fault. Even if the biology teacher says it wrong to the student, this is not where this misconception arises from. It's a physics misconception. And, and in order to break it, you have to build across the idea that, that when we're breaking a bond – that the particles are moving away from each other, but being pulled toward each other. And so it's a podcast. So I'm, I'm pointing my thumbs inward and outward as I do this. But, but one of the examples I'd say with the students, if I'm running this way and the wind is also blowing this way, what's going to happen to my speed? And like, well, you're going to speed up because you're going with the wind. I'm like, great. And if I'm running this way and the wind's blowing the other way, what's going to happen to my speed? Well, it's going to slow down. So we look at the particle motion and say, hey, the particles are speeding up or slowing down. When they're, when they're moving apart and the bond is breaking, they're slowing down. And so we're seeing a, a decrease in kinetic energy, but there's not anything causing that other than the particle motion. So therefore, we're, we must be seeing an increase in, in chemical potential energy. And we look at that on the reaction energy diagram. And then when they come together, now they're speeding up. And so the kinetic energy is going up. And so our chemical potential or positional energy must be decreasing. And, and when we do things that way, we get a better sense that, hey, when I mix big vinegar and baking soda, the, the particles slow down. That means that the slowing down part happened more than the speeding up. So we call this endothermic. But the student has a better picture now of what the particles are doing as they're doing this and also what the purpose of this diagram is showing them. And so I tried to look at what are, what are the examples and the questions and, and those things and to put that together into a very – informal, not bogged down with research and terminology, but just simple thing for a teacher to read, to be able to think about how do I teach energy in reactions? How do I teach stoichiometry? How do I teach quantum chemistry? And, and to have a baseline as well as some advanced components so that teachers could, could do thinking on it. 
And then in each chapter, I start with a chemical history. What's the relevant history in chemistry? And then I do a digression into the typical teaching of those materials. And then at the end, I look at, here are some common student struggles, just like in Aaron's book. You know, like when a student says this, here is what they're actually meaning, right? Because students are not great at communicating how they need help in chemistry. And, and so we go through and look at, you know, when a student's struggling with this calculation, here's how you want to remedy that. And, and then there's a set of flashcards. So we can do a little retrieval and, and teachers can look at what would flashcards look like in a, in a chemistry sense, not in a single word into a symbol, but rather, you know, here's a diagram of a, of a voltaic cell. What thing is doing this, you know, and, and get that high level thinking into retrieval practice. And then at the end, uh, there's also, um, oh my God, I wrote the book and I can't even remember. Um, so I, I have <laughs> students. Are, oh, I have phenomenon. So I have kind of a, a list along with a little safety disclaimer that you're on your own. Uh, but, but I have a list of, you know, these are some fun things that you could try that would illustrate this. And, and often they're not always these really elaborate demos or labs, but really simple things that get students thinking. Cool. I, I do want to say, cause there's people who've probably read the book that I, I had the most fun year last year publishing that book. And if, if you wrote an Amazon review, I've probably read that like 50 times and sent it to my mother. And every time <laughs> I, I get a new book sale, like I get excited still. Um, I, I'm so glad that people were able to get value out of that. And I, I, I care deeply about the field of teaching and teachers, you know, at, at one point, uh, my my wife and I were talking and she kind of uh, broke my glass and something. She says, well, yeah, but all your friends are teachers. And I was like, no, they're not. And I looked through my phone and every single person on there was either teacher or married <laughs> to a teacher. And I was like, I do. I, I really enjoy talking with other teachers. And, and I, I don't know, my mom's a teacher. My wife's a teacher. I'm a teacher. And I, to be helpful in some sense of that is, is wonderful. I hope at some point that someone will help me, uh, edit that book and add to that book and we'll produce a new version that's even better. But I'm super excited with how it turned out and the fact that people actually read it and find it valuable. That's awesome, Scott. That's really great. I'm glad you've uh, contributed that. Um, people can find that book where? It's available on Amazon. Uh, so it's it's self-published at the moment. But if anyone's interested in, you know, Teaching Introductory Chemistry is the title, and the author is Scott Milam, M-I-L-A-M. And uh, so if you're going to go find it, that's where you can find it on Amazon. Awesome. Well, we're running out of time, unfortunately. Man, it's just flown by. Uh, is there anything we didn't talk about that you were really hoping to get to or, uh, no, I, I, I enjoyed thoroughly being on here and I, I just want to say that it's been wonderful, um, being a part of the community. I know I got the, the Malcolm Wells award this year and, and that was really nice nominated by Kristen yeah. Drury, but I know that working with like Ariel Serkin and Jeremy, uh, we ran the intro to modeling class the last few years together mm -hmm. and, um, it's been it's been really nice to connect with all the teachers, and so if you uh, hear this, and are you teaching any any AMTA workshops uh, coming I'm up? I'm doing a summer workshop in Ogden, Utah. Uh, that's in person. So mm -hmm. yes, I'm doing that one, and who knows what will come after that? I just taught the 
post workshop for Chem One. I believe it was the first ever run, so that was really cool. It was a it was a mix of students or teachers that were brand new and also very experienced, and so we kind of did a um, mix of doing you know remediation. Here's some basic help into here's some really advanced stuff. <laughs> And so that, that was really cool. And we had a good time on that. Um, but yeah, I, that's the only one I have scheduled at the moment, but who knows? Well, if, for those of you who are listening, if you'd like to find out more about workshops that are available, uh, and come up and coming, you can go to modelinginstruction.org, which is the AMTA American Modeling Teachers Association website. And, uh, just look up uh, workshops and uh, you'll be able to find not only that but a lot of other resources uh, if you haven't been there you need to check it out because it is a very very good website that uh, has a lot of uh, helpful um, things on it and I say one of the most important things is the workshops because they are critical and uh, very very informative so if you haven't been to a workshop you want to you want to try to get into one well Scott it has been a real pleasure talking with you, and uh, I really appreciate what you're doing uh, for the community and uh, in your own backyard teaching. That's wonderful stuff, and uh, I always appreciate teachers that are conscientious and really focused on helping their students, and you are definitely one of those kind of teachers, and I'm just grateful for that and all of you out there who are doing that stuff. So. So I just want to say thank you for taking this time out of your busy schedule to to talk with us. Well, you're welcome. Great. I am absolutely thrilled to be on here. Uh, there, there was a there was some running smack talk in the uh, intro workshop where I was the only one who had not been on the podcast. So, <laughs> well, that's funny. Well, good. <laughs> well, at least that tells me a little some people are listening that's good (laughs) okay man uh we'll we'll talk soon i hope all right thanks so much thanks so much for joining us on another episode of science modeling talks head over to sciencemodelingtalks.com and you'll be able to listen to any of our archived episodes and access our show notes which include guest bios show highlights and links to resources that were mentioned during the interview While you're there, subscribe to our show so you won't miss out on any of our episodes. When you join this community through our email list, we'll send you a link to a lot of awesome resources from the American Modeling Teachers Association. Okay, so that's our show. As always, remember to keep striving for excellence in your classroom.